Robots Radio presents... In 1994, director Robert Zemeckis and star Tom Hanks gave the world a winding tale about a sincere young man navigating the horrors of the 1960s and 70s. In 2019, we finish off our Glenn Morangy sampler with a 12-year single malt. The movie is Forrest Gump. The whiskey is Glenn Morangy Nectar Door. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film, Film and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1994 film Forrest Gump. Brad, how you doing over there today, man? I don't know if you could hear this, Bob, but I'm kind of sick today. Yeah, you sound a little under the weather. Yeah, I was, and I was thinking about telling you that you could just record the episode on your own, but then I realized that I have a duty to the Film and Whiskey Nation that I needed to get on the mic and keep them from hearing crazy opinions like, Goodfellas is a 10, E.T. is a 10. Yeah, you're ridiculous, man. So here I am. Brad asked me to bring along some medicine for him, and I misheard, and I just brought Glenn Morangy instead. So hopefully this scotch will have some sort of medicinal effect as well. The, the medicine of the gods. That's right. So, Brad, we are talking about a movie today that... Honestly, like it's it's hard for me to talk about Forrest Gump because just like last week with E.T., I feel like this is one of those films that almost everyone has seen at least one time. And it is it is really, really hard to underestimate the cultural impact that Forrest Gump had. It's the kind of movie that almost immediately was spawning parodies on, you know, SNL and I don't know how to approach this movie because it's just so ingrained in American culture. Yeah, and not even not even just E.T., but the week before that, we had Shawshank Redemption. The week before that, we had Fight Club. The week before that, we had West Side Story. I mean, we've been on a kick of movies that really so many people in America have seen. Like, these have been cultural touchstones for lots of different generations. And in a lot of ways, Forrest Gump kind of tops all of those because it's still, to this day, adjusted for inflation. It's like number 25 or 26 all time in the United States. Everyone saw this movie, and it was just a cultural phenomenon. You know, it went to the Oscars and won Best Picture, Best Director. Like, it took the Oscar in a year that we've been talking about, 1994, that was just a fantastic year for movies. So I guess part of what we need to look at today is, do we really think this was the best movie of 1994? How does it hold up 25 years later? And, you know, how does it measure up against movies like The Lion King, like Pulp Fiction, like Shawshank? I can't believe this is already our fourth 1994 movie. Yeah, it it really is insane. And it's also crazy that you just, you know, glossed over the fact that this is the 25th anniversary of Forrest Gump. This is an anniversary that's actually worth celebrating. 25 years. That's right. So, Brad, you know, I feel like this is kind of a stupid question to ask, but had you ever seen Forrest Gump prior to this viewing? I probably had seen Forrest Gump four or five times yeah. prior to this viewing. That makes perfect sense. So you, you go into it with quite a bit of familiarity. Did you notice anything different on this viewing than before? You know, there was there's a few small things that I noticed. For example, at literally the very start of the movie, right after the feather finishes falling at his feet and it, you know, the, the camera pans up and then it pans backwards, it zooms out. When you see the bus come in, on the bus, they give you kind of a touch point to know what time it is. There's an ad on the bus for the 1981 models right. of some car. Right. And that was something I never noticed before. I was like, oh, wow, that's a really cool way to give the audience an indicator of, like, what time it is. Because in a movie that, you know, has so many flashbacks to so many different years, it's kind of helpful to know where you are. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad... <laughs> I'm glad that you you caught that one little thing at the beginning, and, yeah, and that absolutely, really... absolutely nothing else was different on this viewing. Hey, hey, man, I was I was proud of myself. I was like, <laughs> I'm proud of you too. I'm proud. I, of I got too, you. Man. I got you, Zemeckis. So why don't we get into our favorite segment, which is Brad explains, and I'm really interested to hear how you cover 25 years of American culture in just a few minutes, Brad. But let's hear Brad explains the movie Forrest Gump. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump 
was a young lad who was slightly developmentally disabled. And he was told by school teachers that he was just under the bar of what was acceptable to be in public school, but his mother cared about his education and got him in anyways. And then the rest of his life was touched by God, and nothing went wrong, even though everything went wrong. And he lived through the 60s and 70s and met the president a million times. And he really, 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 really loves Jenny. The end. The end. You know what? That's actually not a terrible (laughs) encapsulation of this movie. Thank you very much. And Brad, one of the things that I really struggle with with this movie, we're going to talk about whether or not it holds up at all 25 years later. But I think there's so much buy-in that you have to do as a member of the audience with this movie. In terms of having your main protagonist be a person who is developmentally disabled and played by a person who's not developmentally disabled. And... And not only that, but the whole movie is kind of built around what I guess we could call a gimmick, which is this guy unknowingly, unwittingly goes in and out of the lives of really famous people for 25 years and basically helps change the course of history with his actions. And if you don't buy into the sort of ridiculousness of it all, then I feel like this is the kind of movie where you're going to be miserable the whole time watching it and just rolling your eyes because it is a movie that's about nothing but these crazy coincidences happening. Yeah, I feel like already I can tell that you are a person who does not buy into. Oh, that's not that's not true at all. I just feel like there's there's a lot more suspension of disbelief required for this movie than there is for most movies. Man, that that's really interesting. I I don't know if I've ever once thought that about this movie. Like, they they weave the tale so convincingly in my mind that I never once think to myself, well, this isn't realistic. He couldn't have met the president 50 times and and been an, you know, all-American at Alabama just for running back kicks. And, I like, I just, first of all, I don't First know. of all, greatest kick returner in history, question mark? Oh, for sure. Josh All-American no as rocks. a kick returner? Yeah, that, I mean, he knew what was up. All right, so, Brad... Let me rebut what you're saying right now, because I don't, it's not that the movie's not realistic that bothers me. I think it's the combination of like all the things that if this movie was made today, I think we'd know better. I think that the way they handle the character a little bit, especially in the first hour or so, is like a little cringy to me. I think we've learned how to do movies about developmentally disabled people a lot better in the last 25 years. And then on top of it, I think it's that it's not just that he stumbles into these situations, but that he stumbles into these situations. And I feel like the movie kind of indicates that he stumbles into them because he's developmentally disabled. It's just like they they present him as like the happy idiot. And I really struggle with that for the first hour of the movie. I think once Forrest goes to Vietnam, the movie really picks up. But the first like 45 minutes of the movie, I was really kind of cringy for a lot of it. That's really interesting. I I guess I just didn't take it that way. I t- I took it as him being sincere and that his he he has a lack of understanding of social graces and social etiquette, but he does have an understanding of what it means to be kind to people. And so that's what leads him into these situations, not just the fact that he's developmentally disabled, but the fact that he's just sincere in his kindness. Right. I'm not arguing that the character isn't sincere. I'm talking about the way the filmmakers plop him down into these situations. Like, it just seems it seems a little forced and it seems a little bit manipulative. Oh, gosh, I don't even know how to put my thoughts into words about it. (laughs) I think Zemeckis is one of those filmmakers. You know, he was like a Steven Spielberg disciple. And when we did the Cinderella Man episode, we talked about how Ron Howard is not really a subtle filmmaker, but that he knows when to be on the nose about things and when not to. And I feel like Zemeckis goes overboard in how obvious everything is about this movie. Like there's no subtlety to anything he does in the movie. Everything is so on the nose, even like the soundtrack, which we'll talk about at some point because it's one of the most famous movie soundtracks of all time. Every single song that they use in the movie has lyrics that are describing like what's happening on the screen. And it just seems like he leaves so little to the audience's imagination and everything is so overboard obvious. And I think that's what I really struggled with. That's yeah, that's really interesting. I was when you were talking about the the music lyrics, I was thinking about when Jenny walks out the door 
And right, they and they're playing the, the doors. Yeah, well, and they had the specific line of you don't know, don't you love she her as she's out. walking out the door? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Know. I loved that. that oh, Brad, me. come on, dude. Dude, there's that was perfect for the movie for what this movie was trying to do. That worked extremely well. It doesn't work well in every movie, but for what he's trying to do with Forrest, I think it works perfectly. Partially because when you look at the device of the movie. The entire story storytelling device of the movie is Forrest recalling, you know, moments in his life. Right. And so why wouldn't they be very specific moments that he specifically remembers in a specific way? I get that. I, like, to me, it, it works fine. I get that. And I think, again, I like this movie. And I think maybe that's why I'm nitpicking it so hard, because I do like it. But... It also exists in this very interesting position, the movie Forrest Gump, in like the history of of film criticism. Because Forrest Gump comes out, most critics love it. You know, it's ahead of its time in the way that it tells its story, uh, the scope that it's telling the story on, the CGI that they're using to help tell the story. It, it obviously it goes over like gangbusters at the box office, and then it gets to the Oscars and it wins like everything. And I think that's when critics start to turn on it because they really wanted to see movies like Pulp Fiction take home the gold. And I don't think it's fair to Forrest Gump, but ever since then, for like 25 years, it seems like film critics have been on a crusade to like destroy Forrest Gump and to take away from everything that was ever good about it. And I'm not that guy. I really like this movie. Like it, it's such an indelible part of my growing up. It was always on TV. It is such a big part of my film history. But at the same time, I do think that if we're going to hold it up against all the other movies that came out that year, then we have to be honest about some of the flaws of the movie. And I do think this is a flawed movie. Yeah, there's yeah, there's definitely issues with it. I just don't think Zemeckis being on the nose about a lot of things is one of them. Oh, interesting. <laughs> all right. So why don't we take a step back then and talk about the performances in the movie and you can't really go anywhere in this movie without talking about Tom Hanks because once Forrest grows up, he is in pretty much every scene of the movie. So Brad, let's talk about Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump. So I, I really love Tom as Forrest Gump. This was one of those roles where it's early enough in his career. I mean, obviously he's been going since the seventies and eighties, but like it's still early enough that, I don't necessarily think of him as Tom Hanks throughout the entire movie, but anytime Forrest yells, like when the when the drill sergeant is asking him, you know, how he finishes gun <laughs> yep. so fast and you know, or he yells like, I'm done, sir, he loses the Forrest Gump uh dialect. It sounds like, you know, Tom Hanks. Yeah, he completely drops his accent altogether. When he's putting together his gun and <laughs> he gun drill sergeant? And I'm like, dude, where did your Alabama accent go? Yeah, it's just gone out of nowhere. So there's certain things where I, I look at the performance and I go, you know, it's it's not Hank's, you know, best performance, but it's really, really good. You know, he stays in character for the most part, other than those few instances where he's yelling. And he he's just so convincing. He's so sincere about being Forrest Gump and caring so deeply for other people. Like, there's no doubting that you know, Bubba is his best good friend. Yeah. And that he loves Lieutenant Dan and would do anything for Lieutenant Dan. And that most importantly, he is deeply in love with Jenny and would do absolutely anything for her. And I think for me, that's that's part of why I think the movie picks up so much when he goes to Vietnam. Because up until that point, Forrest as a character is in this really sort of passive position where like people are doing things to him. And I think when you finally get Tom Hanks out in the Vietnamese jungle and they're about to drop a bunch of napalm on the whole area and you finally get to see the fear in Tom Hanks's eyes, he he really does get to finally dig into the meat of the role and just be an actor. And I thought that the first few scenes of the movie, especially for me, were so hard to watch because the way that they try to establish this character of Forrest Gump is this really sort of cringy like look at the special guy. And I hate to use that kind of language, but it really reminded me of, have you ever seen Tropic Thunder? Yes, I have. Okay, so the character that Ben Stiller plays in that movie has made a movie called Simple Jack, where he uh, where he plays a developmentally disabled person, but he like oh, yeah. goes overboard with his portrayal. But what I loved about that movie was that they have a fake movie trailer for Simple Jack in the movie, and they're showing like all of the beats of 
look how good-hearted Simple Jack is. And I couldn't help but think of that at the very beginning of Forrest Gump because he's, you know, it's that iconic shot of him sitting on the park bench, but he's just like talking about people's shoes and closing his eyes real hard and talking about his magic shoes. And I was like, oh man, is this really how we want to start this movie out? Like, this is what you're asking me to get on board with? And it just, for me, it took a while to get into the character not getting in his own way. And so when you get to Vietnam and Forrest is really an adult and he's out making his way in the world, I think that's where the movie really takes off. And I think that's where Hanks's performance really starts to soar. Yeah, the very first time you see Forrest make a decision for himself is when he's running away from the fight and, you know, him narrating says, you know, I did what Jenny told me to do. I ran. And then all of a sudden he gets into a clearing, realizes he's not being chased and he stops and he makes a decision for himself and he says, I got to go get Bubba. Yeah. And he and he turns around and he disobeys one of the most important persons in his life, Jenny. And he goes back and he, he ends up saving, you know, a bunch of guys and he finds Bubba and it's the first time he really makes a decision for himself. And I would agree with you. Vietnam is really where the movie takes off. Well, I'm glad we at least agree on that much. And we do have other people in the film to talk about. But before we get to them, I just want to get your opinion on the two child actors who played Forrest and who played Jenny as kids. You know, they hired the Forrest Gump kid actor really early on in the process. And that's actually how Tom Hanks started to develop the Forrest Gump accent is because that kid had that accent in real life. He really talked like that. And they thought it was so interesting that they built the whole character's voice around that kid. And, you know, his voice is really interesting. But if I'm being honest, I think both of those kid actors were really, really terrible. Really? I mean, dude, they were so bad. They were just bad, especially after E.T. last week. Like they, they don't even know how to deliver a line. Like the scene, the scene, the scene where the kids are throwing rocks at him when she finally does run, Forest Run. Hey, dummy! Are you bored or just playing stupid? No, I'm Forest Gump. Just run away, Forest. Run, Forest! Run away! Hurry! Get the brakes! Hurry up! Let's get it! Come on! Look out, dummy! Here we come! Get you! I don't know if you noticed, but like the kid that plays Forrest doesn't even know how to react to like getting rocks thrown at him. He just gets hit in the face and he, he doesn't even react. He just stands there. It was the funniest thing in the world to me. I think that that was I, to me. I took that as planned as like he's developmentally disabled and he doesn't know how to react to this social situation where he has rocks being thrown at him. Yeah, but I mean, like when they're throwing them at adult Tom Hanks, he's at least like trying to block the rocks. This kid just stands there and takes it on the face. Uh, Yeah, and to me, like, I don't know. That didn't seem like bad acting to me. If anything, it seemed like good acting to not react. Oh, wow. Yeah, I I think we are very divided on our opinions of this movie, dude. Yeah, I dude, I don't know where you're coming from on this movie. Like you I feel like you're coming at this movie with a very critical disbelieving attitude and I'm coming at it from a like yeah, like that makes sense to me that a a child who is developmentally disabled and hasn't faced this situation before wouldn't necessarily know what to do when, you know, children are throwing rocks at him. And when Jenny, you know, yells, "Go, run, Forrest, run." Like He's like, okay, I'm going to run now, you know, and he runs. I think what what the difference is in how we're arguing today, Brad, is that you're arguing from the the inner world of the movie. Like you're arguing as, yeah, a character, a, a real person who had never been in that situation may not know how to react. I'm arguing at, about it from like a movie making standpoint, which is it doesn't matter if you're like a developmentally disabled person. If you get hit in the face with a rock, it's going to hurt and you're going to at least like touch your face or you know, recoil from the impact of getting hit with a rock. And this isn't even like a major point in what I'm saying. I just think the kid was a bad actor. Yeah, I mean, I I think that what we're getting into is kind of one of the bigger debates about movies in in the essence of can a movie transport you into a world where you are able to suspend your disbelief you know, because in the end, movies aren't real. Even even a super realistic, gritty movie, you know, about, you know, police and gangsters or something like that. Like, even that, 
is not real life. It's fake. And so movies inherently ask us to suspend our disbelief. And I guess for me, Forrest Gump does a great job of it. I I didn't have a hard time believing any of this. It didn't make me think, oh, this kid's a bad actor. It kept me in the world of the movie. Yeah, see, and I guess I'm just in a different spot where what I'm arguing is I had a really hard time getting sucked into the world of the movie because so many things about that first 45 minutes made me think, ooh, this is rough. Like, this is bad movie making. And once we, like I said, once we get to Vietnam, I'm in and I'm all in. And at the end of the movie, I'm crying like everyone else in the theater. But I think it just takes a while for this movie to kind of find its footing, especially because they hang so much of the early emotional impact on these two kid actors that I just don't think are any good. Yeah, I I will say the the lines for me, Jenny is a more important child actor and she delivers her lines very woodenly. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I do struggle with her a little bit. But then you get Haley Joel Osment at the end of the movie, and he's just freaking adorable, and he delivers his lines so smoothly that I just don't understand how a child can be that good of an actor at an age of, what, like six? Yeah, dude, Haley Joel Osment is a national treasure. This is my very good friend, Mr. Gump. Can you say hi to him? Hello, Mr. Gump. Hello. Oh, can I go watch TV now? Yes, you can. Just keep it low. When he got on screen and he asked his mom, like, Mom, can I go watch some TV? <laughs> like, he says it was so right. much inflection and depth. <laughs> I'm just like, how did you find this child? He has that adorable kid voice, too, where she's like, say hello to my friend, Mr. Gump. And he's like, hello, Mr. Gump. It's, it's the yeah. best, best kid performance in the whole movie by far. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. And I do want to say, while we're on the topic of people with really small parts, I really loved a lot of the bit part actors in the movie, like the people sitting on the bench with Forrest at the bus stop. And my favorite, the MVP of the whole movie for me is Dorothy Harris, the bus driver, because that woman, that woman makes me laugh out loud every single time she comes on screen with her cigarette hanging out of her mouth and saying, like, this is the bus to school. It's just, it's it's so good. I loved it. What? So she wasn't necessarily a minor, minor role. But what did you think about about Sally Field in this movie? I love Sally Field. And you know what's really interesting to me about her character? You know, she's nominated for an Oscar for this movie. I remembered her being in the movie more than she is. She's really only in about four or five scenes. She's she's there when Forrest is really little. She's there like at his college graduation. She's there for like 15 seconds when he comes home from Vietnam and then she dies. And I thought she was in this movie way more than she is. And I guess that's the sign of a good performance because she had such an impact on me that she tricked me into thinking she was on screen a lot longer. Yeah, I actually really thought the same thing. I had remembered her being more prominent in the movie, and then I actually watched it, and I was like, oh, she's like barely in this movie, and was nominated for an Oscar, and I I don't understand that at all. So Tom Hanks and Sally Field had made a movie back in the 80s called Punchline, where they played stand-up comedians, and they were love interests in that movie. And Sally Field is only, she's not even 10 years older than Tom Hanks in real life. So they really made her up to be an older person than she is in the movie. And to be 100% honest, I thought that her old lady makeup when she was like about to die was a little rough Um, because you can tell when someone is young and is being made up to look really old. And she just she just isn't that much older than Tom Hanks. And he's supposed to be playing like 25 and she's supposed to be playing, you know, like in her 50s or 60s. And it was really funny to me because I know in reality that they're just not that far apart in age. Yeah, that definitely struck me because I I knew that they had been in some movies beforehand together. And this watch through, I was like, oh, Sally Field is like the same age as Tom Hanks. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So, Brad, before we take our break, I want to run through the rest of the supporting cast. Robin Wright as Jenny. We need to talk about Gary Sinise as Lieutenant Dan. And we need to talk about Michael T. Williamson as Bubba. I was going to say, honestly, I'm just going to rank them Do it. from top to bottom. Uh, I'm going to go Bubba, Lieutenant Dan, Jenny. Yeah, I I think I'm going to go Lieutenant Dan first and then Bubba and then Jenny. But the, the crazy thing is they're all really good. I don't want to put Jenny last and say, like, she isn't any good. Yeah, I for whatever reason, I, I'm going to make two statements. Number one, 
I think I think that Robin Wright does a really good job as Jenny. There's nothing in her performance that I can fault. I think she gives a lot of depth and, you know, quality to that character. But for some reason, I don't care for her as Jenny. You don't care for her as Jenny or you just don't care for Jenny? No, I don't care for specifically her as Jenny. I don't know huh. why, but there's some reason whenever I watch this movie, I'm like, I always just kind of have this thought in my head of like, I wonder who else they could have cast as Jenny. Yeah, I guess that's, I mean, that's a good point because there were tons of people they probably could have. You know, this is at the same time where Julia Roberts is blowing up and she probably would have made a fine Jenny. But my big problem with the character of Jenny is how underwritten she is. And again, I, I, I'll, I'll grant you that the movie is told from Forrest's perspective. So he doesn't know a lot about Jenny's home life. And it's implied to the audience in a way that Forrest never understands. But I still think that her coming from a, a household of abuse doesn't explain the way she treats Forrest throughout the movie. And she just she really, really wants to run away all the time. And at the end of the movie, the only explanation she really gives is like, hey, I was really messed up there for a really long time, so I'm kind of sorry about it. But I really struggled with how many times Forrest would travel like across the country to see her and she would politely, you know, hang out with him for like a day or two and then sneak off. And it really, really bothered me because I wanted more insight into her like psyche like what was driving her to run away from everything why did she never want to commit to Forrest why couldn't she you know accept his love for her and what was calling her away all the time and that really really bothered me because Robin Wright is the kind of actress that could pull that kind of stuff off if they would just give her a couple more minutes of screen time to develop that stuff yeah I think that they expect you to kind of pick that up between the scene when she's a child and they imply that she's being sexually abused by her father. And then the second part that I think is the most important is when uh, she's living with Forrest at the mansion right after his mom died. And she said, you know, he says, you know, will you marry me? And she just says, like, I'm not good enough to be your, you know, he says, I'd be a good husband. And she just says, I'm not good enough to be your wife. I'd make a good husband, Jenny. You would, Forrest. But you won't marry me. You don't want to marry me. Why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man. But I know what love is. So if anything, I think the biggest answer to that question is that she just has a deep sense of shame. And I would imagine that she blames herself for being sexually abused as a child. And that that has led her down these paths of drug abuse and addiction and, you know, promiscuity and all of these things. And she just carries a sense of shame of like, you know, I screwed up as a child. I screwed up as a teenager. I screwed up as an adult. I just keep screwing up and I'm not good enough for Forrest. I think that she just looks at Forrest so highly that she could never imagine herself actually deserving him. And so she runs away because she thinks that in the end she'll be bad for him. So I agree with everything you said, but I want to ask one other question about her. Do you think that she was actually romantically attracted to Forrest at any point? I think that she struggles with that. I think that by the time she's an adult, I think that she has worked through the fact that he is developmentally disabled. Yeah, I, I mean, I think she has too, but I don't think she's ever actually romantically attracted to him. I think that by the time they finally get married at the end of the movie, it's because she's learned to love him in a platonic way. I mean, the implication yeah. is that she has AIDS, right? HIV, especially. Right. And Or hep C. Right. Something that is going to kill her. And we can assume that she and Forrest don't, like, consummate their marriage after they get married or else he would have contracted something. So, like, the only time she's ever intimate with him or the only time she ever expresses love towards him, he accuses her of not loving him. And then she comes into his room that night and has sex with him. And I think that is a really interesting insight into the character in that, like, the only way she knows how to express love is through sex because she has such a messed up history with sexual trauma. But I never got the sense that she actually loved him in a romantic way. I think she learned to love who he was, how he treated her in a really platonic way. 
but it, it's certainly not your typical husband and wife relationship. Yeah, uh, I guess as you were saying that, though, I was like, how beautiful is it that she learned how to love in a platonic fashion without having to use sex to express herself? Well, I, I agree with that. But I think that there's probably people out there who would view it the other way, which is and there's a huge contingent of people that see Jenny as like the villain of the movie because she rejects Forrest at every turn. Throughout the 70s, she's using him, you know, for a place to crash or for whatever. And then it isn't until she contracts a deadly disease and has a kid that she needs to secure his future for that she comes back into the picture. So, like, there's a way to read this movie where you can see – and I'm not saying I see her that way. There's a way to read the movie where Jenny is just, like, a heartless, heartless person. Yeah, and honestly, I saw that this this watch through. There's so many times where I'm like, man, Jenny, like – out of any human being in the world that should understand Forrest and be able to love him better, it's you. Yeah. And you're not doing it, and you're being a jerk, and you need to just stop it. You know, that's that's how I feel about you on, like, a weekly basis, is that you're just being a jerk, and you need to stop it. Well, you give terrible takes on <laughs> movies. so uh, The feeling is mutual, my friend. So, yeah. But I, I will say this about Jenny. I really do think Jenny is the most important character in this movie. Without her, you don't have an impetus for Forrest to do almost anything. That's very like, true. He views his life through the lens of what can I do to love Jenny? Yeah. I think that's why her actions are so important in the movie is because without them, you, you just don't have a movie. So I really do think she plays the most important role in the movie. Yeah, she definitely does. And one of the things that plays the most important role in our podcast is the inclusion of whiskey. And Brad, I think that it's time that we dip into this Glen Morangy nectar door so that we can fuel the debate for the second half of this episode. What do you say? Nectar da. Let's do it. All right, so today we are trying Glen Morangy nectar door, or as Brad likes to pronounce it, nectar da. <laughs> The most French-sounding name ever. Nectar de, uh, the Golden Nectar. Yeah, it literally means the Golden Nectar. Yeah, for sure. And, Bob, tell me about why they call it the Golden Nectar. So they actually, this is another finished single malt scotch. You know, we've tried the La Santa. We've tried the Quinta Rubin. They were both finished in different kinds of casks. And this one is finished in wine casks from the area of Sauternes, which is in France. They call it the Golden Nectar because of what was in those wine barrels before they finished this scotch in them. So Glen Morangy markets this as a, a much brighter, fruitier tasting scotch than the Quinta Rubin. When we were doing that one, I talked about how all of their marketing materials kept using the word dark, dark, dark. This one, you know, the, the language they use is like lemon, tart, vanilla. They keep using the word silky. So it really seems like they're trying to market this as something that has like maybe a more creamy sort of taste to it. I'm really interested to see how this differs from the Quinta Rubin. Yeah, honestly, as I'm as I'm smelling this, I am picking up on that lemon that you said. It's got a it's got a nice tart, but not not offensive in any way. But it, it has a really nice tart nose to it. Yeah, it's very bright. You know, that's a word that we continually use. And we've talked about how with some of these finished scotches, there's a lot of crossover in what we picked up on the nose of like an Irish whiskey. And I'm getting that here as well. There's definitely some fruit on this. It's very, very bright. But I'm also picking up tons and tons of caramel on this in a way that almost reminds me of a bourbon. It definitely does have that sort of... Uh, you know, I don't want to say silky, but like that sort of creamy candy smell to it that I'm anticipating. This is going to be really sweet. This is going to be. Yeah, it's it's a little bit velvety. You know what I mean? Oh, there it is. That's the word. Velvety. I knew that's the word you were looking for. I got your back. Thanks so much, man. All right, man. So what would you give this on the nose? I'm going to give it an eight. It has a really nice wow. nose. There's a lot of complexity and, and interest. It, it makes me want to drink it very badly. I'll say this. It has all those notes going on, but the thing that bothers me about the nose is that it's really subtle. You know, Brad has talked before about how he's had to stick his entire nose into the glass to try to pick up something, and I kind of get that with this as well. It definitely doesn't have as 
potent of a nose as some of the other Glenmorangies we've tried. And that takes it down a few pegs for me. So I'm actually going to give this a six and a half on the nose. See, Bob, if you really understood scotch the way that I do, you would know that you need to stick your entire nose into a glass to get its full body. Well, and that's what I did. And it's it's too subtle for me. Six and a half, Brad. <laughs> let's Let's give it a taste. Let's do it. Oh, wow. That's really good. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it's it's really, really, really sweet. It's probably one of the sweetest scotches I've ever had. And the two things I'm picking up are caramel and honey. So it's like a like a double whammy of <laughs> of of ways that something can taste sweet. And then all through it is just this crazy amount of spice. Like it's spicy from the time it hits your tongue to the time you swallow. Not a burn, but like peppery baking spices. I really like it. Yeah, this is really impressive to me. And I'm actually going to I'm going to kind of zoom out my lens a little bit from just talking about nectar. to. Uh. <laughs> but going into our tasting of scotch, all I had ever heard was that it tastes like paint thinner and it just, you know, it tastes terrible and all this stuff. And it's been really exciting for me to realize that they were all wrong. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, from what I've seen, there seems to be two branches of scotch, you know, peated and non-peated. And we've tried a peated, and I liked it. I didn't like it quite as much as the non-peated stuff. But it's just really interesting to me to see that, like, not all scotch has to be peated. You can have some scotch from Scotland that is extremely tasty and fruity and sweet. And it still tastes, you know, it still has a very specific scotch flavor to it. Yeah. But man, it's really good. You know what's really interesting about the taste on this one for me is that it tastes really similar to a bourbon. It's really sweet. There's lots of caramel. For me, there's some honey. And it's just spicy all the way through. And what's crazy about it is like when you look at this in the glass, it's not nearly as dark as a bourbon. It's a little bit thinner of a mouthfeel than a really like aged bourbon. And they've somehow found a way to get the flavor of like a 12, 15 year bourbon into this scotch. And I'm really blown away by that. Yeah, I I am really enjoying this a lot. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the taste. Eight and a half. Wow. I'm going to give it an eight on the taste. This stuff is this stuff is hitting the spot. Man, Glenn Morangie hitting it out of the park with this sampler. Shameless plug, Glenn Morangie, if you're listening and you want to be the official sponsor of the Film and Whiskey podcast, we will not say no. In fact, I would say very very avidly, yes. Let's yeah. do this. Just send us a couple bottles and we're all we'll be good. Yeah. For all right, sure. Brad, so what are you picking up on the finish here? The finish is amazing. It's got it's got these nice peppery notes to it that you don't necessarily get on the front of your tongue. Um, there there's some depth to it that that you don't get till the back end, and then you just have a nice pleasant burn that sits on your throat, but it, it doesn't offend you. It just it just kind of it kind of hugs you a little bit. It says, "Hey, I'm here. I want you to know that I care about you." Wow, you are you're having a moment over here with this uh, this whiskey, man. Mm. All right, so what would you what would you score it? I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight. It's a really solid finish. Yeah. So here's the thing. For me, I don't care for the finish because all of the sweetness comes out of it on the finish and you're left with those spices and uh, the pepper taste. And it's actually a fairly bitter finish. I like it, but I wish that there was some lingering honey or caramel notes to it. And so I'm actually only going to give it a six on the finish. Yeah. So as far as balance goes, I look at this and I go, man, like, I gave this an eight, an eight and a half, and an eight on my scores. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a nine on balance. It just works for me all the way through. Yeah, I'm going to give it an eight on the balance. You know, I thought that the nose was a little bit lacking, and I thought that the finish was a little bit lacking, but not nothing like crazy. Like, it wasn't out of left field when I tasted it. I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. So it was it was pretty consistent. It wasn't as good for me as the Quinta Rubin all the way through. So I'm going to give it an eight on the balance. And that brings us to our final category, which is value. Now, in the state of Ohio, a fifth of Glenmorangie Nectar Door will cost you $59.99, which I'm fairly certain is about the same price as the Quinta Rubin. And it's going to be hard for me to give this a score where I'm not comparing it directly to that. And I'm just generally saying, is this a good value? Because if they are the same price, or if they're even within $5 of each other, 
I would probably choose the Quinta Rubin 10 times out of 10 over this. This is a really good whiskey, but for $60, I'm not quite sure if I'm on board for it. Uh, so I'm going to give it a seven and a half on value. Yeah, honestly, the Quinta Rubin is like a 57 or $8 whiskey, I think it was. And so it's pretty much the same price. I'm going to go ahead and give this a nine and a half on value wow. because I gave the Quinta a 10 on value. If you can find a phenomenal scotch that you love drinking for $60, that's a good value. When you're talking about a lot of normal scotches that are $150, $200, $250, I just can't get away from the fact that this is a good value. Now, how often am I, a young millennial, going to go out and buy this? Almost never. Right. And that's unfortunate. So maybe that should affect my score more. But when I'm aware of how expensive other scotches are, I have to look at $60 for something I'd love to drink and say, yeah, that's really good value. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. It is comparatively to what else we've had in the scotch world. I really, really like this. I just think that I was so crazy about the Quinta Rubin that it would be hard for me to ever pick this up off the shelf above the Quinta Rubin. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. I think that's a fair, fair assessment. So Brad, I am coming out to a 36 out of 50. What are you coming out to? Man, I'm a little higher. I'm coming out to a 42.5. So Brad's coming out to, what would that be, an 85 out of 100? Yes, sir. And I'm coming out to what would be a 72 out of 100. So yeah, we're, we're a few percentage points off, but that puts our overall average at a 39.25 or a 78 and a half out of 100. I think that's pretty fair. This is definitely in the top quarter. It's approaching the top one fifth of all the whiskeys that we've had. And yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend this. If you're in the market for an interesting, much sweeter, uh, finished single malt scotch, this is the route to go. Yeah, there's a lot of sweetness here. There's a lot of fruitiness. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on in this scotch. And I would highly recommend it to anybody who's just interested in trying out the world of scotch. But what I would more highly recommend is if you haven't drank a lot of scotch and you want to try a lot of it, go buy this sampler that we got. I, I, Bob, where can they find it? Where did you find it? This sampler is available, should be available just at your corner liquor store. It was, you know, behind the counter for me, but it's a four pack of 100 milliliter samples from Glenmorangie. It's in this nice little yellow box. It was $24. And at the time I thought, wow, only 100 milliliters each, $24. I don't know how I feel about that. But every single one of these, even the standard Glenmorangie was an above average whiskey. And the three finished whiskeys were all phenomenal. And they've ranked right up there with the top whiskeys we've had on this podcast. I cannot recommend highly enough going out and spending $24 on this sampler. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, honestly, if you do the math, you will get two drinks out of each sampler, out of each you know individual bottle. And that means that you're paying $3.12 per glass of scotch. Yeah. And that is a good price to pay for really good scotch. So go out, find this sampler. It's really amazing. All right. So that has been Glen Morangy Nectar Door. Brad, would you recommend? 100%. Go, go drink it. What do you say we get back into talking about the 1994 Best Picture winner, Forrest Gump? Never heard of it. <laughs> All right, so that was Glenn Morangy Nectar Door, and we are back into talking about Forrest Gump. Brad, you know, I, I think I agree with you. I'm I'm nitpicking a little too hard on this movie. It is a fun movie. It's, I mean, it's just a classic. It's ingrained into the culture of America, and I feel like in a lot of ways, it's one of those movies that it's it's kind of hard to criticize, especially when you're just talking with like the average Joe, because this movie has become so revered in American culture. So maybe it's time for me to talk about what's good in the movie. So why don't we do this? Brad, give me like your top one or two scenes in the movie and why. I really, and for no other reason that it's just so simple and perfect, I really love the scene when Bubba is explaining all of the different ways you can make shrimp. Shrimp gumbo, pan fried, deep fried, stir fried. There's pineapple shrimp. Lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, shrimp sandwich. 
he just goes on and on and like that like honestly i think that is an example of great uh you know filmmaking in the fact that just through simply cutting to them doing something completely different you get the you understand the passage of time that this is something bubba talks about constantly no matter the circumstances yeah the the bubba explaining shrimp is a hilarious scene and i hate to take us into like morbid territory but on this watch, I really, really loved the sequence, you know, at at the side of that lake in Vietnam where Bubba dies. And oh, it's not yeah. that I love watching Bubba die. It's just that it's so well acted. And I love when Zemeckis stops cutting away from the action and doing montages and allows the camera to just linger on these two people. And I think that's when the movie is at its strongest is when he just plops the camera down and lets his actors act. And for me, those two scenes in this film this time around were Bubba at the side of that lake and Forrest talking to Jenny's grave. And I know those are like the two saddest parts of the whole movie, but those are also the two parts of the movie where I'm the most emotionally affected and the most you know tied to the character of Forrest because we get a breather. We get to see Tom Hanks reacting to things. And I, I just think those are such incredibly well-acted scenes that they kind of top everything else in the movie for me. Yeah, I I totally agree. The scene when Bubba dies is just heart-wrenching. Yeah. And the thing is, you've only spent about 10 minutes in the movie with Bubba. Like, he he barely comes into the picture. And, like, Vietnam does not take up much time in the movie. No. And yet Bubba has such an indelible mark on this movie that you couldn't imagine the movie of Forrest Gump without Bubba. You no. Know, it's Bubba Gump Shrimp Co. Absolutely. Forrest, why did this happen? You got shot. Then Bubba said something I won't ever forget. I want to go home. Bubba was my best good friend. And even I know that ain't something you can find just around the corner. Bubba was going to be a shrimp and boat captain, but instead he died right there by that river in Vietnam. All right, so Brad, you know, we're starting to run a little long here. I wanted to talk really quickly about, does this movie have deeper themes? And I think that it's pretty clear what Zemeckis is trying to do with the characters of Forrest and Jenny. And and I've been very vocal about the fact that I don't think he does it very subtly. I really do think Jenny is presented as a stand-in for, quote-unquote, America in the late 60s and 70s. And I think one of my problems with Jenny as a character is that, like, does she have to do everything does she have to be a hippie and be in the disco scene and get AIDS? Like, it just seems like every major news story that came out of the 70s, like Jenny embodies those things. And, you know, it it works. It's not the most subtle thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, but I think that's if you if you want to look for an overarching story in this movie or narrative, I think that you see it in Jenny and Forrest's relationship. In the fact that I, I think Jenny, like you already said, she stands in for the chaos that happened in the 60s and 70s. But the thing is, there was a massive amount of people in the 60s and 70s who didn't do drugs, who didn't do the whole disco scene, who didn't do all those things. Like my parents grew up in the 60s and 70s and they didn't do all those right, things. Exactly. You know, they saw it on TV. But I think that there was a majority of people in the U.S. who watched, you know, those things on the news and didn't know what to do with it because they, you know, for them, they would say, like, this doesn't represent my reality. It doesn't represent the life that I'm experiencing. And so I think that one of the reasons Forrest Gump was so popular with audiences is the fact that you see Forrest representing, you know, the majority of Americans who would say, you know, I don't identify with all of the chaos, I identify with Forrest, yep. who kind of passively observed yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. At the end of the day, I think that's one of the movie's downsides, is that they make Jenny represent, like you said, all of the chaos of America, because it, the movie's kind of a parable. You know what I mean? Like, it, Jenny clearly is a symbol, and Forrest clearly is a symbol. And so you can't expect them to write them as you would write, like, a regular human being. 
But it it always just kind of bothers me that the way the movie is set up is like Jenny does everything bad <laughs> and 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 makes yeah. every single bad decision. It's like, did you really have to yeah. also have her do this thing or that thing? And Zemeckis takes us on a tour of American history and American culture through about 25 years. But we never really stop to like examine or discuss any of the issues. And I've always kind of felt like the character of Forrest is in some ways a cop out for actually talking deeply about the issues that our parents or our grandparents went through in those eras. Like, and I think that's why part of the movie doesn't hold up as well for me, especially that first hour or so when Forrest is in college and they're desegregating. It's one thing when you have Forrest kind of like stumbling into certain scenarios and not understanding them. But I really think that, especially in today's culture, the issue of race, the issue of desegregation, having Forrest be your entryway into that conversation and them not really examining it in any sort of way, I don't think it holds up really well. In a lot of ways, that character of Forrest ends up becoming a cop-out for them to not have to go any deeper with their examination. It's just kind of like one of those, oh, remember Watergate? Well, yeah, we're going to say Forrest was there. But because Forrest is developmentally disabled, then we don't actually have to discuss it any. We just have to mention that it happened. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like this movie does kind of hit the lowest common denominator. Hey, remember John Lennon? Remember Watergate? Remember Vietnam? Yeah, Forrest was there for all those things, too. Weren't those interesting, crazy times? But there's like there's nothing deeper than that. It just kind of seems like a montage of things that happened with no underlying like message to any of it. Yeah, but in the end like this movie was 2 hours and 22 minutes, Bob. Like if they had really delved into more, this could have been a 4-hour movie. I feel like you're excusing a poorly written script in a lot of ways though, Brad, because the solution to that is you don't have to show every single event that happened in American history. You could have trimmed 4 or 5 of those out and gone a little bit deeper and developed a little bit more characters around some of the other things that happened. And then you would have had a way more fully fleshed out movie than the one that you got. A poorly written script? Yeah, I I think that we've talked about how some of the characters aren't developed. I think that they're really on the nose with the dialogue. They gloss over so many events in American history. I don't think that this is, I mean, and I wouldn't say that it's a bad script, but I would say that there are parts of this script that are underdeveloped. Oh man. I, I just don't understand how we are so far apart on this movie. Like to me, this is an extremely tightly written script that moves you through the sixties and seventies. I guess the big thing for me is I'm not looking for this movie to give me commentary on the 60s and 70s that this movie presents two opposing views on the 60s and 70s jenny who lived the destructive nature of it and forrest who didn't necessarily understand it and i think that represents america at the time i think a a large portion of american citizens during the 60s and 70s didn't understand the chaos that was happening around them and then a small portion of Americans at the time reveled in it and they they enjoyed it and they they, you know, just dragged themselves into it and they were very passionate about it. And Jenny represents them. And then you see at the very end of the movie, Jenny has a normal job as a waitress and she's kind of grown up. And I think, honestly, during the 80s, you saw a lot of the revolutionaries of the 60s and 70s kind of realize like. Well, I need to make normal money. I, you know, I have kids now. I'm not a teenager anymore. I have to do normal things. And I think the 80s in American culture, you see the children of the 60s and 70s kind of growing up. And you see that in this movie. So for me, I think this movie is extremely well written. I think the movie really captures what happened in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I Like... You, your argument was that it's tightly written, and I agree with that. And I think it's it's so tightly written that it moves too quickly through some of these things. And that's my biggest complaint with it. And huh. I would like to hear, Brad, your final score for the movie Forrest Gump, and would you recommend it? I mean, I'm kind of waffling between nine and nine and a half, but I think I'm just going to give it a nine and a half. This is a really great movie. It captures American history 
in a way that not movie many movies ever have. Hmm. And and I'm just really impressed with the way Zemeckis was able to move through so many events and so many cultural touchstones of the 60s and 70s that I, I think it's a phenomenal movie. You have great performances. I love this movie, Bob. I, it's really, really well written and interesting, and it captures your attention from the start. I, I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of ten. Yeah, I think it's a really good movie. And part of the problem with trying to look back on this movie 25 years later is that I think of of all the movies from 94 that we've watched so far, this is the hardest one to evaluate in terms of, quote unquote, 25 years later, because at the time this movie came out, I try to put myself in those shoes. Movies weren't made like this in this sort of like historical snapshot style where everything kind of does move quickly and seem like a montage. And I think this movie was really revolutionary in a lot of ways. 25 years later, I think there's been so many ripoffs of Forrest Gump that it's it's easy to tip into like, oh, Forrest Gump is a cliche because I don't think that at the time that it was made that it actually was a cliche. And so I have to factor that in. That being said, that first 45 minutes are super rough for me because I think it's it's badly written in the first part. I think the kid actors are really bad. I think that there are a lot of things in that first 45 minutes that would just not make it to screen today if we were going to do that. The stuff about the Ku Klux Klan, the stuff with uh, desegregation and George Wallace. And so I've been really waffling back and forth between a seven and a half and an eight on this movie. I think it's a fan like it's a really well-made movie. I think it stands the test of time. It's freaking Forrest Gump, guys. Like it is what it is. So I think I'm going to give it an eight. I think in my heart, I'm probably closer to a seven and a half. But Brad has convinced me that I'm too critical all the time. So I think I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Wow, man, I I would not have thought that you would think of giving this movie a seven and a half. Thus far in this in what we've reviewed so far, a seven and a half would be a pretty low score for what we've reviewed so far. Okay. <laughs> so I guess I guess that's why it surprises me that you would even think about giving it a seven and a half, because to me this is a phenomenal movie that that is well di- I, I don't know. I I mean it's I yeah. think it's one of those movies that's like it's as important to the culture as it is a good movie. And I think it's a good movie. I wouldn't call it a great movie. It's just, it's a really important movie in the history of films. It holds up fairly well. And I think it's a good movie. I'm never going to not want to watch it when it's on TV. But I think I also just, I, I don't think that it's like an all time great, amazing movie. And of the huh. four movies that we watched from 1994, I would say it's between this and Shawshank for like, which one is worse. And you know, I, I probably would choose Shawshank over this just after this last viewing that we had. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad movie, but I, I definitely would put Pulp Fiction and The Lion King way ahead of this. And I'd probably put Shawshank above this, too. Man, yeah. What would be your final ranking of our 1994 movies? That, yeah, that's interesting. I would probably go Pulp Fiction first, Forrest Gump second, Lion King, Shawshank. So can we at least agree that this movie should not have won Best Picture up against Pulp Fiction. You know, probably not. Pulp Fiction probably should have won it. But then you look at, you know, what is what does Best Picture stand for? Why, you know, why should a movie get Best Picture? And I think that Forrest Gump checks some of those boxes and Pulp Fiction checks very different of those boxes. This definitely appeals to a much wider fan base. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, so that brings our final score out to an 8.75, which I think is, I mean, I think that's a fair average for this movie. It's not, you know, it's it's not competing with Casablanca in my mind, but it's also, you know, I think it should be way above like a Fight Club or an Assassination of Jesse James. Or a Goodfellas. <laughs> it's a good movie. And Brad, I'm really excited to introduce our movie for next week because next week is our last episode of the first season of the Film and Whiskey podcast. Yeah, the the final episode of our first season. And we are going to be watching Rear Window. The 1954 Alfred Hitchcock classic. And what we're going to do is after we have done Rear Window, we are going to rank all of the movies and we're going to have a little bit of a March Madness style bracket challenge to determine the champion of season one of Film and Whiskey. Guys, we cannot thank you enough for staying with us on this journey of season one, please continue to follow us, 
subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes, go over to Instagram, let us know what you think on social media about Forrest Gump. Brad, if they want to give us feedback, where can they find us on social media? At Film Whiskey with an E. At Film Whiskey with an E, or give us a call on our call-in line. The number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. introduce myself um i'm corin black a humble half demon and folks around baltimore call me the devil's runt here we go finally moving again how do you feel about methamphetamines you know devil's blood don't make you a devil Under the Shroud, fantasy, noir, and horror from Baltimore's sin-soaked streets. Find creator Ian Humphrey on Twitter at FictionalIan.com.